My interests were were never purely on the technology side. It was always on the side of, of what is technology helping us to understand about ourselves and, and each other. And so when it came to learning about ebooks, there was kind of an obvious interest. It's like, wow, you know, not only can I read a book on a computer, which at that time I, I didn't do a whole lot of. I mean, I still was reading print books for the most part. But to me, it was more important that the knowledge in a book or the words in a book could become easily available to me, you know, much more easily on a computer than by going down to a library or looking on a, a bookshelf. So if I want to know something that might be in a thesaurus, well, I can use the online Roger's thesaurus. I can use the online CIA factbook. You know, there are a bunch of reference materials that uh, that were digitized in early days. These days, we're mostly doing fiction and nonfiction, but not so much reference materials. Back then, reference materials were a big deal, uh, or something that I just wanted to remind myself of. You know, remind myself of a passage from Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Well, that's a lot easier to do with a text file on your computer. You have to search for some text using a word processor or like Linux grep command or what have you than it is to find a book and then page through the book. So I think the appeal to me of ebooks was to see how the utility of an ebook matched in most ways that of a printed book with the, the you know, limitations that were a big deal back then, like you're not gonna have a network and a computer on the beach or in the bathtub or something. So, you know, limited in some ways, but, but matched in terms of the words on the page, uh, a printed book, and more importantly, exceeded what you could do with a printed book. That was Greg Newby extolling the value of ebooks. It's not a difficult argument to make these days. After all, while traditional print books are still ahead of ebooks in terms of total sales, the ebook market is closing that gap fast. So clearly, plenty of people seem to recognize their value. But that wasn't always the case. In fact, considering the first ebook was published in 1971, it took the better part of a half century for ebook adoption to become mainstream, and it took a team of volunteers to lead the charge. They were, and still are, the volunteers behind Project Gutenberg. And the project's current leader, with a tenure that began back in 2000, is, well, Greg Newby. Are you ready to hear the story? Let's get dialed in. Hi there, and welcome to Webmasters. This is the podcast that explores entrepreneurship by talking with some of the digital world's most impactful early innovators. My name is Aaron Dinan. I teach innovation and entrepreneurship at Duke University. I study the history of the internet. And oh, by the way, I've got a doctorate in English literature. I bring that up not because it has much of anything to do with studying and teaching entrepreneurship, but because it means I probably like books more than the average person. And that means I get to geek out about this episode's guest and topic more than a lot of you listeners. But don't worry, you're still going to enjoy the story of Project Gutenberg. Just in case you're not familiar with Project Gutenberg, it's a huge collection of over 60,000 free ebooks. Anyone can access them. The archive is at www.gutenberg.org. Be sure to check it out if you haven't already, or even if it's been a while, the collection there is constantly growing and is pretty impressive. In a minute, we're going to dig into why Project Gutenberg exists and why all of us should care. But first, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsor. 
Webmasters is being brought to you with the help of Latona's. Latona's is a boutique mergers and acquisitions company that helps people buy and sell cash flow positive internet businesses and digital assets. That includes things like Amazon FBAs, Shopify stores, SaaS apps, content websites, domain portfolios, and any other type of online work from everywhere internet business. If you've got a profitable internet business and are thinking of selling it, contact Latona's. Their team of experts can help you get it sold for a great price. Or if you're interested in buying an internet business, be sure to visit the Latona's website where you'll find a huge collection of listings featuring businesses you can purchase right now. That website is latonas.com. L-A-T-O-N-A-S.com. Time for a confession. Yes, I love books, but I personally avoid reading anything I can't get on Kindle. In fact, I don't remember the last non-Kindle book I read. I know that's basically heretical for someone who spent more than a decade of his life studying literature, but well, I'm a practical person and ebooks are just more practical than physical books. We can download new ebooks instantly, we can take them with us wherever we bring our phones, they're easily searchable, they take up less space, and the list goes on and on and on. But those benefits of ebooks come at the cost of the physical form of the book, and people who prefer physical books tend to argue that the physical form is part of what makes a book, well, a book. And that's the core debate of ebooks. Are the words on the page the book, or is the book the physical object? Whatever you believe, the people behind Project Gutenberg are mostly interested in serving the former. We're not making these books for scholars. If you're a scholar, go and do scholarly stuff, go to the library, you know, um, find a transcription that meets your needs. We're doing this for readers, and readers don't care about the exact, you know, page layout of some particular print edition. What they care about is enjoying the story. That, again, was Greg Newby. He's our guest for this episode, and he's a little different than our other Webmasters guests. Usually we talk with the founders or creators of whatever venture the episode focuses on. Unfortunately, that's not possible with Project Gutenberg because its founder, Michael Hart, passed away in 2011. Michael is widely regarded as the inventor of the ebook when he digitized a copy of the U.S. Declaration of Independence in 1971 and then distributed it on what was then ARPANET, precursor of the internet. In doing so, he effectively started Project Gutenberg. We're going to hear Michael's story, but we're going to hear it through his good friend Greg, who also has a great story. Greg has been continuing Michael's legacy as the CEO of the not-for-profit Project Gutenberg Project, a position he's held since it was officially established as a nonprofit back in 2000. So yeah, Greg isn't technically the founder of Project Gutenberg, but with over two decades at its helm and another decade working on the project before that, I think it's safe to say a lot of the credit for the project's immense success belongs to Greg, and even Michael recognized that. Something that Michael told me once is ringing true. He told me back, uh, uh, might have been somewhere around the year 2000, around the time when I was getting started as the CEO of PGLIF. He said, you know, all the work you're doing as a faculty member, all the work you're doing as an individual, uh, this is great and, and, and there's nothing wrong with it. But Given what we're doing with Project Gutenberg, that's where you're more likely to be remembered. That's where you're more likely to have a long-term impact. And looking back on all my career changes and sort of the, the pathway I've taken through life, uh, I'd say that he was right. You know, that the work that I do as someone that's keeping Gutenberg running is 
absolutely through a series of good choices, absolutely going to have enduring value long into the future. And that's its own reward. So let's learn how Greg found himself running Project Gutenberg. And to do that, we'll start with a little background on how Greg first got interested in digital technologies. Yeah, I remember back in, in junior high school, the Commodore Pets arrived in a, in a computer lab, and I would mess around a little bit. My buddies, I would go out to the mall, and we would always stop by Radio Shack and, and uh, do a little basic programming on the candy TRS-80s or similar computers that were on the shelves there. I got them to do some, some fun displays or something like that. Uh, shall we play a game? That was very early. When I got to high school, they had a 16-bit computer. I don't, don't remember the model number anymore, but uh, but again, it was on the terminal. These were uh, the yellow paper typewriter type devices, uh, teletype devices. And so I would you know, use a, a text editor to get writing programs in, in basic and sending text messages to my buddies. And we were doing something like uh, chat at that time. This was before something like IRC had been invented, but we were able to send messages back and forth to the terminals in the room. We also had some other computers, uh, microcomputers of the day that were out in the adjoining lab, but I was on the mainframe. So did you study computers in college? I wasn't actually trained as a computer guy, even though I was using them all throughout my life. I was trained going into college as a social scientist. My majors were in communication and psychology. In my college career in the uh, early and mid-1980s, I was uh, working with a professor who was doing essentially text analysis. He was sort of pursuing a theory of human cognition and human communication in which messages would be treated a little bit like items with mass and items with force would in a physical model. This is called the Galileo method, by the way. But the point there is that it was all computer-based. He was slurping in text from uh, surveys that were given to people about opinions and, and attitudes. In addition, the analysis consisted of looking at uh, what they call paired comparison data. And I'm going into a little detail here because it ends up being relevant to Project Gutenberg. The uh, paired comparison data are how words relate or close to each other and perceived as similar or different by people that are giving their opinions. So I was helping out with this as an undergraduate student and then continued on as a graduate student and then actually continued on as a PhD student working on my own, developing this uh, further theory of how you could treat words and numeric characteristics of words as concepts and sort of figure out what that meant. I was working in, in artificial intelligence areas and uh, thinking that this might be sort of an answer to how machines could have their own self-concept, how computers could have their own self-concept, just like people so sort of an aspect of artificial intelligence. That was all through the 1980s. Okay, I see. So you're interested in studying language in relation to computers. That seems like a logical connection to Project Gutenberg. How did you first get introduced to the project itself? Again, it was, it was in the later 80s. Uh, internet came along. The same computer systems that were on BitNet, which was basically a storm-forward system good for text messages, so like email, uh, they got on the internet, which, of course, is a packet-switched system. And by the way, if you want to learn more about BitNet, don't forget to check out our episode with BitNet creator Ira Fuchs. That's Webmasters episode number 32. And so suddenly we were able to have interactive communication. And so, for example, the instant messaging that I was doing on a local system with people that were in the same you know, room or on the same campus as me, I could use that type of system across the wide area network. And that, of course, emerged later as things like Internet Relay Chat and some other protocols. So this was all predecessor uh, work to the modern internet, 
What I think is interesting and relevant to Project Gutenberg is during this period, I got an email, which was the Millennium Fulcrum edition of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. This was an ebook. It was around 1987. I had never thought about ebooks. I was a big reader. I was always a big reader since I was uh, very young, but never thought about ebooks, never realized that such a thing might be possible. But there was a book in my inbox that had been going around the internet and it was forwarded to me by a buddy. So I knew at that time that people were creating books on the internet. And what about digital books interested you? Why do you think they mattered? My master's uh, thesis, when I was, I was looking at how to augment artificial intelligence systems with the self-concept, what I was thinking of there was, how can we take systems and make them more similar to people? Not because we want to have uh, you know, robot apocalypse or something like that, but because we want to augment our own human intelligence. And that was actually my doctoral degree, which was uh, something focused on what we call exosomatic memory, which is when you hold information outside of yourself. This was a science fiction concept when I was working on it in uh, 1990, 1991. Uh, these days, it's what we all do, right? We have this little phone device that we wander around with our memories and our contacts and our information on it, or it's a gateway to other information. We store documents, we store other materials on computers so we can find them later. And of course, most importantly, perhaps, we use these massive search engines as a augmentation to our own intelligence, to our own information processing capability. And this is incredibly cool because, and this is getting a little far away from ebooks, but, but consider what ebooks do for you. They make it so that your human brain, which is no better than brains were 20 or 30 or 50 or even probably 100 years ago or longer, it makes your human brain with its limited capability better able to find information that you need, better able to process information that you need. So ebooks are, are a part of that, but the bigger part is the broader exosomatic memory. And the exosomatic memory today is not just the stuff I mentioned, it's also the libraries, right? So everyone can be a scholar on Moby Dick or someone that can recite Tennyson's uh, poetry because they can call it up right there. So to me, there's not a very explicit overlap, but a, but a very uh, broad and implicit overlap between having not only electronic books, but a digital library and all these other things that the technology of the day can do for us to augment our own intelligence, expand our own intellectual reach, add capabilities and capacity to our ability to think. For what it's worth, I couldn't agree more with Greg. In fact, a lot of what he's describing here overlaps with my own doctoral work, which focused on language as a technology of information storage and dissemination. By that, I mean, even though language is something very natural to all of us, it's still a human innovation. It's not like we came out of the primordial ooze being able to create the kinds of stories you're listening to in this podcast. Language had to be invented, and it was invented as a way of transferring information across generations, which is a huge evolution advantage. Put another way, it's better for the species to be able to tell our children, hey, watch out for the pointy thing on that animal's head. If it stabs you in the stomach, you might die, than for our children to have to learn that lesson on their own. So anyway, for me, that's why the core of books is in their content, not their form. You can agree or disagree, and that's fine. 
Regardless, what makes Project Gutenberg compelling is that it leverages the internet to help distribute the content inside of books. In other words, it gives books even more reach. That value proposition is what got Greg interested in working with Michael. By that time, I was working towards a PhD, ended up with a faculty position at the University of Illinois, where I met Michael. I was in 91. And in my first semester there, as a young faculty member, I saw a newspaper article. And it was an article in the local newspaper with Michael Hart. It was in Section 2. He was holding up, I think, a CD of uh, e-books. And it was basically an interview with Michael. And I thought back and I realized, wait a minute, I heard about this. I got Alice's Adventures in Wonderland maybe about five years ago. And in the intervening times, I'd spent an awful lot of time keeping track of what was going on on the internet. This is before something like Google. You know, you didn't have a good way of searching. You had to do browsing. You had to look for stuff and do word of mouth and communicate on email lists with people that might have interesting things to share. So I had, for example, a list of uh, FTP, file transfer protocol sites that I would use to show my class about all the cool stuff you could get to on the internet. We were using some earlier protocols or something called Gopher. There was a search system for Gopher called Archie, as a matter of fact, and at about the same time. But in 1991 at Illinois, I, uh, I met Michael and started becoming involved with Project Gutenberg. So Greg got involved with Project Gutenberg in 1991, which was 20 years after Michael Hart created the first ebook. And by the way, you heard Greg mention using a pre-Google search system called Archie. Quick plug that we actually talked to Alan Emptage, founder of Archie, here on Webmasters episode number 21. Be sure to check that out. Now, even though Greg wasn't there from the beginning of Project Gutenberg, he was kind enough to share the somewhat famous story of how it all got started with Michael. The origin story is well documented. Michael Hart was someone that had affiliations with the University of Illinois, and someone uh, gave him a username on one of the very earliest computers connected to the internet. Or at that time, I think it was called ARPANET, but it was the internet of the day. And Michael did not have programming abilities. He was someone whose father was a Shakespeare scholar, but whose father and mother actually met when they were both code breakers during World War II, or both cryptologists, you know, very mathematical folks, but who also worked with words. So Michael had been given this access. It was uh, leading up to July 4th of 1971 and was wandering around Urbana-Champaign, Illinois, where the University of Illinois was, went into a quickie mart to get a snack of some sort. And because it was uh, 4th of July or the day before the 4th of July, the, he was given in his little bag a printout of the United States Declaration of Independence, a sort of a commemoration of Independence Day in the U.S. And sort of like a light bulb, he said, oh, I could make a book. I could make an electronic book, which would be this text this United States Declaration of Independence. He went back to the lab. He stayed up all night until actually the early hours of, of July 5th, 1971. And during that time, he used one of those old clunky teletypes that I was talking about. I was using still years later in the uh, lab at Illinois and typed in the U.S. Declaration of Independence. At that time, there was no lowercase. There was only uppercase. So we had a uh, U.S. Declaration of Independence only in uppercase. And what did he do? Well, of course, he sent it by email to all of the uh, other people that he knew about who were on the ARPANET of the day. So that was how electronics books were born. And so that was the first ebook. There were other people that had done textual analysis using computers, including at least one that I traced the history back 
about five or six years earlier who was studying Moby Dick. And, uh, and there were other people at the time that were looking at uh, what we call hermeneutics, which is study of words in the Bible. So there were other electronic uses of books going on, but no one before then that we are aware of, that we, we've heard about, had come to the realization that this was a way of actually reading a book, you know, of enjoying a book, of uh, experiencing a book. So Michael did that in 1971. So he launched the first ebook, the Declaration of Independence, and then what? How long did it take after that for Michael to turn Project Gutenberg into, for lack of a better phrase, a real thing beyond just one text? About 20 years of work to get another few dozen books. He spent an awful lot of time working with people on the uh, King James Bible. He spent a number of years, actually over 10 years, working with his father, who as I said was a Shakespeare scholar, working on the uh, complete Shakespeare. And there are a bunch of other interesting stuff. Uh, Alice is mentioned in Wonderland, which is number 11. We've mentioned they did things like the Federalist Papers and the inaugural address of Abraham Lincoln, things like this. These were all in the first 100 or so. He also got donations of some books uh, during that time. So this is the birth of Project Gutenberg. The birth is a pretty neat story. And it's one of someone that was throughout his life able to see things that other people did not see or that they saw but didn't quite grasp the meaning. So Michael was someone that saw people sending emails back and forth and maybe knew something about using computers to count words and do some text processing, but made the leap to electronic books back in 1971. So that's sort of the origin story. I know Project Gutenberg has over 60,000 books now, but you're saying it took 20 years to get the first few dozen done? Why do you think it was so slow to get started? During the intervening years, Michael fought constantly to legitimize electronic books. And not, not that they existed or could exist, that they should exist. Librarians were particularly on his case that ebooks are just not useful. You can't take them to bed. You can't know for sure whether the words match a given printed edition that's on a shelf. You're getting rid of typography and dropped capital letters and images, you know, other things that make up a book. These were all legitimate complaints. But Michael was being essentially attacked, sometimes personally, as someone that was uh, destroying the book, destroying literature simply by digitizing electronic books. There's just a lot of detractors, and he spent a lot of time during those 20 or so years uh, defending the value or the eventual value of ebooks. Now, during that time, of course, technology was growing up. You know, uh, Windows uh, 3.1 came out, and the Macintosh came out before then, and suddenly people were dealing with documents as documents, not just as text. In other words, you could have a graphical view, like a WYSIWYG type of editor to see what your document would look like and incorporate graphics and stuff like that. But you got to realize that that was well over 10 years after Michael had been working on Shakespeare and other stuff and being uh, criticized for it. You leap ahead another 10 years, and suddenly uh, the idea of ebooks was not so crazy because we had ways of distributing them. We had the Gopher sites and the FTP sites and eventually the worldwide websites of the day. We also had better methods of creating them. So obviously, lowercase came around, you know, during that period. So we could have mixed case. We could include graphic files, even if they weren't embedded, because we weren't doing HTML until the mid-90s. But even if the graphics weren't embedded, we could at least distribute the graphics alongside the uh, books. So they got more usable, just as computers overall 
were getting more usable at that time. So the persistence, sort of these middle years of Project Gutenberg into the 80s and into the early 90s, were very much uh, times of still trying to produce books, but also uh, defending that ebooks were even worthwhile to do. So then you came along in 1991, and it sounds like that was also a turning point, not necessarily because of you, I mean, but it sounds like that's when the project really started taking off, right? Why do you think that was? Sometime around the time I met him, maybe a year or so before, Michael had an ambition of doubling production of ebooks, you know, doubling the number of ebooks that Project Gutenberg released every, uh, every year. And so when I joined, I think we were doing something like eight or, or so books per year. And then we wanted to double the next year. So he had this notion of getting to 10,000 by uh, sometime in the middle of 1990s and then just, just continuing on since then. And actually, we made that goal. Uh, we made the goal of 10,000. I think it was 1994. And I think equally as importantly, ebooks became easier to use, easier to find because of other stuff that your podcast is going to deal with. So what came, what came along during that period? Well, Alta Vista. You know, internet search engines came along, uh, Mosaic and uh, subsequent web browsers came along. Uh, the, one of the biggest things that I credit here is Windows 95. Suddenly, not only did you have a graphical interface, a much better graphical interface, but Windows 95 came with networking. And you had things like AOL and other internet service providers. So suddenly, the stuff that was really kind of a hobbyist thing, you know, getting on the internet, putting together a modem, figuring out how to dial your modem and terminal programs and, and all that stuff. All of a sudden, with Windows 95, it just worked. You know, you could get yourself on the internet with your computer and your modem and your phone line and so forth. And so suddenly, the presentation mechanisms that we've talked about, HTML and so forth coming along, were much friendlier, much more usable ways of experiencing an electronic book, whether or not it was in plain text or HTML or something else. So that's sort of the middle period of Project Gutenberg, uh, you know, longest period of time when Michael was fighting for legitimacy. He was uh, at the same time continuing to produce and equally as importantly, the whole zeitgeist of what's now the internet, this started to emerge. Everything, everything was coming together in those middle 1990s. Mid-90s? So we're talking a while ago. Why are you still doing this? That's a long time for any project, let alone a volunteer project. You know, Michael died in 2011. I had become the uh, CEO of the corporation that we set up to handle donations and stuff like that back in 2000 after becoming involved with Gutenberg in 1991. So we had a little bit of an organizational structure going. We were working with a group that we helped encourage and found in 2002 called Distributed Proofreaders. Distributed Proofreaders is an early instance of crowdsourcing. This is where people work together to uh, each work on an element of a task. And, you know, in this case, the task is to make a, an ebook. We continued on. We, we did not continue to double production every year, but we do continue to add about 200 new books per year. And we continue on because we have a core of volunteers, a uh, you know, number of volunteers that are producing the ebooks and are posting the ebooks. Obviously, I'm still involved in um, giving general project oversight, helping to maintain the technologies. We have some great technology hosting partners with uh, iBiblio at the University of North Carolina. And I think most importantly, well, probably two things are most important. One is that there's still work to be done. There are at least a million or a couple of million books out there that are eligible to be done. 
And the second is that uh, that we get rewarded. We get uh, we get told that these are valuable resources. That the work that Project Gutenberg does to digitize in a very high quality way the printed works of of the past has value. It's uh, enjoyable to read. They're nicely formatted. They're not all capitals. They're not you know without their images. You know we solved all those technology problems over the years. You know so they're really quite enjoyable to read. And of course you can you can put them on your ebook, reader, tablet, phone, other types of device that so many people are using to read these days. So the uh, the growth of ebooks as an industry, as in the generally accepted way of, of interacting with printed word, has helped to maintain Project Gutenberg's uh, relevancy. In my mind, it's this last part that really speaks to what's so fascinating about Project Gutenberg as an idea. Personally, I remember encountering Project Gutenberg sometime in the mid-90s and thinking, eh, this is sort of interesting, I guess, but why would I read a book on a computer? That's not very practical. And to be fair, it wasn't practical to read an 800-page George Eliot novel on my big old desktop PC in the mid-90s. But fast forward a few decades, and I'll happily pull out my phone to read a few pages of that same book while I'm waiting in line at the grocery store. Michael Hart saw that future all the way back in 1971, which is kind of crazy. And almost equally impressive is the work Greg has been doing to continue fulfilling that vision since he became CEO of the project in 2000. The Project Gutenberg Literary Archive Foundation is the organization that I'm the director and CEO of. We have a small board. We're a nonprofit. And really, I'm the only one of the uh, board members who is actively involved in day-to-day operation. But I'm actually very actively involved. And this is something that picked up over the years. Back from when I was first working with Michael, I was helping with FTP sites and made a book or two. But these days, I'm, I'm sort of the top of the pyramid of this sort of benevolent dictatorship that I inherited from Michael where we try to work with some other people. I'm not entirely dictator, but I work with a small group of people to try to figure out how we're going to do stuff over time. So we have, in Project Gutenberg, we have a number of volunteers. Everyone's a volunteer, including me. And we have a production team, which is about a half dozen or so people that take the uploads, that take stuff that people submit, and post those uh, as new eBooks to www.gutenberg.org. So we have some technology sort of antiquated. Uh, there's some elements that we've been modernizing, but more or less what we're doing with Project Gutenberg is pushing files around and making sure that those files, uh, usually it's a text file, an HTML file, and uh, you know some associated images and some metadata, uh, make sure those files meet our production quality criteria. So we have some automated tools for looking for spelling errors and um, the types of errors that scanners make when they're going from, you know, a picture of a page to two words. And we do some formatting. We make sure HTML is valid. There's a bit of a description of this on a website called upload.pglaf.org. So if anyone wants to know some of the details of these tools that we use and the process and the steps, that's the place to go. How do you choose what books get digitized? This has actually evolved a lot over the years. And we have a collection development policy at www.gutenberg.org, which goes into detail on what we accept. And the short answer is we only accept items that are in the public domain in the United States. Historically, we have all kinds of things that got uh, submitted. Uh, and part of this was that in the early days, there weren't websites and ebook sites all over the place. And you couldn't like 
self-publish or, or very easily get something that you created online. It wasn't that easy to do. We have a bunch of things in the collection, which these days we wouldn't add to the collection. And we love that stuff. It's just that we're focused entirely these days on items that are in the public domain in the U.S. I was wondering about copyright. That has to be a huge issue. How do you navigate it? Copyright is something that Michael Hart didn't think he would need to be an expert in. And then it turned out he did. And I followed on and now I'm an expert in copyright, including international copyright, but very much so in the U.S. where Project Gutenberg is based and all of our, all of our servers, all of our infrastructure. The bottom line is that Project Gutenberg has always been very, very diligent about following applicable copyright law. Now, laws have evolved over that period. Uh, we had major revisions in 1976 and 1998 to U.S. copyright law, and we've continued to follow it. What that means is that when we were making a, an ebook, we had to make sure that it was legal to do so. And with a small number of cases, this was by permission. But in most cases, it's due to having no copyright. Its copyright term expired and entered the public domain. Or in some cases, like with government publications, I mentioned the CIA called Factbook because it never had a copyright. But mostly it's stuff that copyright expired. So Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, published in the 1800s, entered copyright uh, no later than 56 years after that time. So it was long in the public domain by the time we digitized it. These days, due to extension of copyright to 95 years, in most cases, uh, we're working on items that are almost 100 years old, you know, that are 95 years old or older, of course. So we had actually a, uh, a delay, a 20-year hiatus between 1998 and 2018, when nothing new had its copyright expire in the United States. So we continued to work on older materials, but couldn't get an extra year of stuff to work on. Luckily, that's moving forward. And can I ask, since you've had to become an expert on copyright law, what do you think about copyright? Here on Webmasters, I've had an opportunity to speak with lots of innovators who were some of the early digital file sharing pioneers, and needless to say, they aren't huge fans. So I'm curious to get your take. So we're all copyright experts. We are um, not against copyright. The founders of the United States had as Article 11 in the Constitution, the notion that copyrights were important to help to expand and sustain the useful arts, you know, that they would uh, encourage people to write books and do other things because they would have a limited term copyright on a uh, limited term monopoly through copyright on the what these days we call intellectual property, you know, and the ownership of that, that work. Um, that has a long history going back to the Statute of Anne in England where they were worried about people stealing works and republishing them themselves. This is a real concern. I, I don't have any gripe with the notion of there being a copyright. Unfortunately, in the United States, like most of the rest of the world, copyright is way out of control with a 95-year copyright term. And that's one of the longest in the world. That's 70 years in most other places in the world. With that very long copyright term, what that means is that the author the creator isn't getting any benefit because they're dead. The creator is probably long gone by the time a 95-year term expires. And in fact, the publisher might be gone. There might be nobody trying to sell this work or benefiting from it. So the founder's original intentions are not being met by such a long copyright term. Instead, the, uh, the beneficiaries 
are either the heirs, so people that didn't actually create the book but happened to be lucky enough to be a, a progeny of uh, someone that did, of the author or creator, uh, or more so the corporations that are locking up that book and selling it decades and decades after the person that created it is, uh, is dust in the ground. So it's unfortunate that copyright term is so long, but going back to what I said earlier, Project Gutenberg is very, very diligent and stringent about making sure that anything that we put into our collection is legal to do so. And with our new collection development policy, that's uh, only focused on items that are public domain in the United States. That was a well-organized answer. <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, you're respectful of copyright. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, so the other thing I'm curious to know is what kinds of trends do you see about what books are getting read? So every day, if you go to the uh, the top 100 page at www.gutenberg.org, you can see the things that were downloaded the most yesterday, you know, the day before. And we can do a trend over a week or a month and also keep track of authors. What's interesting is that the top books don't change that much over time. They only change very slowly, but they do tend to uh, shift quickly or, or one or two books will shift quickly based on popular media, especially movies. So when there's uh, a movie out, then suddenly something will become uh, a top book. A good example of this is Pride and Prejudice uh, by Jane Austen. This is almost always in our top five and it wasn't there until the movie came out, Pride and Prejudice. And then suddenly it rocketed up to the top and it stayed there. And it's been there for uh, for years. This is, of course, a great book to read. Uh, Sherlock Holmes tend, tends to be towards the very top. In the top 50, usually, is Franz Kafka's Metamorphosis, which is a fantastic book and uh, one which is not subject to uh, to a movie that I'm aware of. That seems to persist. In the top 20, we see uh, Graham Stoker's Dracula tends to stay up there, and so does uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Those also tend to stay in the top. So it does evolve somewhat over time, but for the most part, the, the top books are the types of things that you would guess, or they include the types of things that you would guess would be in the uh, most popular works. Okay. People are reading Jane Austen and Kafka. As a literature guy, I'm happy to hear that. And to all those people using Project Gutenberg, or even people who aren't, is there anything you wish they'd read more of? Well, I think it's all good, really. I, I don't want to encourage people to read particular types of things. I just want to encourage people to read. And I don't want to encourage people to only read for enjoyment or only read for reference or only read, you know, because you're uh, looking at a phone, but but not use that same book when you're in the bathtub or something like that. I mean, I, mean, I, I don't want to uh, tell people how to use these materials. I just want to make sure they're as available and as usable as possible. <laughs> okay. So you won't commit to a preferred text on there? Fine. Uh, how about more broadly, what do you wish people knew or understood about Project Gutenberg in general? I think the main thing that people should know about Project Gutenberg is these are unlocked books. They're, they're files. They're just files. And you can do with them as you will. So if you want to print something or you want to make the font larger or you want to grab an extract and send it to somebody or take an image and put it into a montage or use it as your desktop wallpaper. These are entirely unencumbered files 
There's no digital rights management. There's no um, impediment. There's no custom software, none of that stuff. So we work really, really hard to make these as, as widely usable for any intended purpose as possible. Now, we do have the ebook formats. There's something called EPUB and Mobi, which is the Kindle format. These uh, are not as easy to uh, sort of unpack and work with, but these are derived automatically from HTML or plain text. And HTML, that's the internet markup language, the, the hypertext markup language. You can save that to your computer, put it into a Word document, uh, post it to social media, you know, anything that you want. So I think that's the main thing is that, unfortunately, people are used to being limited in what they can do with digital content. And Project Gutenberg seeks to be unlimited, unlimited use, unlimited redistribution, and of course, unlimited enjoyment that you can have of these books. So I think that's something that's important to share as one of the main characteristics that differentiates, say, the pride and prejudice that you can get from www.gutenberg.org from the pride and prejudice you could buy in the Kindle store for $12.99. That Kindle store book is going to be digital rights managed. It's going to be locked. It's not going to be something that you can share with uh, your family. It's not going to be something that you can forward on to other people who might be interested in, unless you forward a link and they buy a copy. Ours, on the other hand, same words, same historic uh, text, but has none of those limitations. Unlimited redistribution, unlimited ability to make derivatives and no limitations on how you can enjoy the work, how you can make use of it. What Greg is saying here is definitely worth highlighting. One of the most underrated aspects of Project Gutenberg and other resources like it is the freedom they offer. Project Gutenberg has 60,000 completely unlocked texts, and oh, by the way, many of them happen to be some of the most important texts in human history. And anyone with an internet connection can access, enjoy, and above all, share them however they'd like. You can't do that with a Kindle book. Heck, you technically can't even do that with this podcast episode you're streaming. And at least in my mind, that'll always make the resources on Project Gutenberg more valuable than their printed counterparts. I'm not arguing printing doesn't have benefits, but mass instant shareability certainly isn't one of them. And if, like me, the thing you prioritize about books is what's written inside of them, then being able to share that content with anyone, anywhere in the world, at any time is immensely valuable. Michael Hart believed that when he launched his first ebook back in the summer of 1971, and Greg Newby continues that legacy today. These days, it's obvious that Michael was right. Back in 1971, he was seeing decades into the future that people would be using computer-type devices to experience the printed word. So he was right. And it took at least 25 years of uh, him devoting his life to making this reality come about before finally the shift began to occur. And suddenly, you know, people weren't ridiculing ebooks or criticizing ebooks. They were actually reading ebooks and enjoying ebooks and buying ebooks and giving away ebooks and so forth. So, so this was to me quite a, quite a story. And, and from my point of view, it was, there was sort of a, a bit of serendipity that I ended up meeting Michael being in the same university in the town where he was based in uh, back in 1991. And yet also, from my point of view, this is a very tightly aligned story with my own story of trying to empower and enable human intellect through technology. And ebooks obviously are a big piece of that. Well, 
I'd like to thank Greg Newby for taking the time to tell us about his work with Project Gutenberg. And hey, if you'd like to volunteer, I'm also going to let Greg explain how to do that. These days, most Project Gutenberg volunteers are actually distributed proofreaders, volunteers. So if you go to www.pgdp.net, distributed proofreaders, you'll find a huge and wonderful community of people that are working on the various stages of producing an electronic book before it gets submitted to the upload portal that I mentioned earlier. This is where people can uh, just do proofreading, which is essentially comparing uh, a scan of a page against the words that have been extracted from that page. There are other people that like to do the formatting, things like the dehyphenation, uh, the markup, um, the final uh, assembly. There's also something called smooth reading. I love smooth reading. Smooth reading is where the book has been through all the rounds of proofreading, and all you want to do is have someone enjoy it, someone read it. Because if you're reading it, uh, you're likely to find some errors that were missed at earlier stages because this uh, proofreading is what we call asymptotic. In other words, you can make it better and better and better, but it's tough to get to really perfect. So we try to have uh, multiple rounds. So distributed proofreaders is a place where most Project Gutenberg volunteers are spending their time. And the books from DP make up the largest portion of new books to Project Gutenberg. In other words, they, they provide most of the new books. Uh, from distributed proofreaders. So that's really the place to start. Uh, most of the roles that we have within the PGLIS side the, the, of Project Gutenberg, those tend to be somewhat specialized and not that many of us. So we have a small production crew, we have a small technology crew, we have a few people that are working on the backend technologies, for example, to convert HTML to uh, EPUB or, or Mobi formats. Um, so if people are interested in something that's more on the technical production side, certainly they can get in touch with me. My contact info is on the page at gutenberg.org. But for most people, the place to get started is with distributed proofreaders at pgdp.net. So there you have it. You can help continue the legacy of Michael Hart by becoming a volunteer for Project Gutenberg and or distributed proofreaders. Also, you can help contribute to the legacy of this podcast by making sure you're subscribed, by leaving a great review, and by sharing this episode with a friend. I'd like to thank our audio engineer, Ryan Higgs, for helping make everything sound great. And I'd like to thank our sponsor, Latonas, for their support. Remember, if you're interested in buying or selling an internet business, be sure to check out latonas.com. If you're interested in sharing thoughts or feedback, find us online. We're on Twitter at WebmastersPod. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at Aaron Dinan. That's A-A-R-O-N-D-I-N-I-N. And you can read lots of articles from me about startups and entrepreneurship over on medium.com. Just search for my name to find me. And that should keep you busy until we release our next episode coming soon, I promise. But for now, well, it's time for me to sign off. Goodbye.